everybody, and welcome to our new show. It's called Blind Spots. I'm Chris Horvodell, joined by Greg Crone. God knows that you guys all know who Greg is. Joined me for many, 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 many other podcasts in the past, and uh, it's fun to finally have our own show, Gregory. I know, I know. One uh, once a week, very different than what uh, what I'm used to. Usually, it's like a six to twelve month gap. <laughs> well, you know, I get sick of you, so it, it's hard. I need a break. That's completely understandable. <laughs> no, no, no. It is It is very often far too long. And so the idea of what we're going to do here is uh, you're going to help me learn about the things that, that I don't know about, those sports where I have the <laughs> quote-unquote blind spots. <laughs> See what we did there. Um, <laughs> and typically that's that's mixed martial arts. That's hockey. You know, maybe we'll talk about some baseball at some point, but – but I think we're definitely going to start off with mixed martial arts in the UFC, and you're, you know, you're going to teach me, teach the listeners uh, what we need to know, and uh, give us a better knowledge base for these sports. And I, you know, I think we're going to be more informed. That's that ends up being the goal is for us to just be more informed about these sports that are, you know, growing in popularity so quickly, like esports. You're a big esports fan. Uh, yeah, huge <laughs> esports guy. I, I mean. Uh, I just want to get some of the money from the esports uh, <laughs> party. That's that's what I'm looking for. Because being being in like the seventh division of uh, FIFA online, sure. Does that count? It does. It does. Is there a FIFA esport? <laughs> it's got to be, right? I'm sure there is. I mean, there almost has to be. And um, what, what exactly? I know. Obviously, we're kidding about the whole you being into esports thing. But can anything be an esport? Is it just at any? Any sort of video game competition constitutes esports. I mean, I guess, um, but I, I think from what I gather from from the very limited research I've done into esports, is yes. a lot of it's like team based games, mm -hmm. um, a lot of role playing games, maybe. Like the Dota, make sense? The Dota is the League of Legends, yeah. the Overkills. Yeah, I have. I, I used to have a guy I worked with um, who was really into Final Fantasy. Mm. I think. And he used to go home and play it, like, every night. He had a team of friends all across the country that would play. And, and I think, I guess it's games where you can team up. But then, then that makes me wonder, like, how does NBA 2K have an eSport league that they're planning? Like, what, what does that consist of? Do you have five guys that each control one player? Well, or can, is it... I, I know you can do that because you can – there's the the park feature or whatever it is, and you can take your created player and, uh, you know, go play some, go play some fake pickup basketball. Yeah, my creative player stinks every year. Mine so, too. I just get bored of it. Honestly, I just get bored of it. I, well, it's a lot of repetition. Yeah, especially. I think I, it was. Good. I was gonna say I think it was like NBA 2K15 where I really went hard um, on the my player mode, and after like the third season of playing all these games, and at a certain point, like averaging a triple double, mm -hmm. I was like, each game's just the same. Like I go for. 10 assists right away, I go for 10 steals, and then just score the rest of the game. It got very boring. That's the thing we've always known about Greg Crone's my player, is that he does not rebound the basketball. Not interested in it. Uh, absolutely not. Rebounds were never a priority. And it's so easy. It's always so easy to average a triple-double in those games. And, you know, you're a, it's unrealistic, too, because you're, you're a starter when you're, what, like a 64 overall starting in front of the Russell Westbrook yeah. of the world. Yeah, I, I think I remember getting drafted by like, like the Jazz, and I'm starting over Gordon Hayward two years ago. Which, 
at the time, of course, he's not not at the level he is now, but still, my uh, guy who played two games of college basketball shouldn't be in that starting lineup. I played a little bit of 16. I think that's the most that I've ever played it. That was the uh, the the freak year, whatever frequency vibrations or whatever NBA 2K16. I played that, and uh, that was interesting because that was a, a Spike Lee story. But this year, yeah, I, I, I believe the gentleman is Prez this year, and uh, and co-starring Michael B. Jordan of, I mean, many things. Certainly not the most well known for the uh, the Fantastic Four films where he plays Johnny Storm, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I I, I just haven't gotten into it. You're right; it, it's very very repetitive. And I don't need to yeah. sit through a practice where I'm learning how to set a screen in a video game. No, not even not even a little bit. That, that's that's the part of those those season setups. They're like, oh, they make you go run a scrimmage. I have to yeah. run a five minute scrimmage. No, just put me back in the game. I don't I don't want to have to run a scrimmage against my teammates. Yeah. And then you get bored and you just want to play with different people and you want to get to free agency. I don't know. Just go yeah. out and just go out and play real basketball. And honestly, I should take my own advice there because I have been incredibly lazy lately. Oh, I've I've gotten back on the court, joined a joined a men's league team, and I'm terrible. It it, it has been way too long. Uh, came out with a dominating six points in our first game, and have gone three straight games scoreless. So, you know. Well, I'm hearing rumors that the, the Frankie Janice is the world are thinking about making a move to upgrade the position. You know what? It, it, it wouldn't shock me. All right. Well, we can talk about this later. Right now, let's get into the first of our lessons, as it were. And, uh, and that would be, I guess, an introduction into, into the MMA world and the UFC world. Yeah. I mean, for, for like the casual fan, when they think of mixed martial arts now, you really only think of the UFC. They're kind of that. They're kind of that mainstay, um, if that makes sense. Um, the popularity of it has risen exponentially over the past, I'd say, ten years or so, um, where it's really sort of taken off. Obviously, it's sold for four billion. Yeah, that's crazy. Or um, reported, sorry, a reported four billion dollars over the summer. Mm. Um, but but in reality, when it first started. You know, 23 years ago, which is absolutely insane uh, to think that UFC one was 23 years ago. Um, it, it was it was like blackballed from kind of everywhere, and it was built as like anything goes. You can kind of you, you could literally do anything you wanted. The matchups were all pretty crazy. I mean, they they were trying to find what discipline works the best. Um, now, when you say discipline, as far as you're talking about what? Yeah martial arts in general or, or combat sports really. So like you had guys that were Taekwondo specialists, boxer, jujitsu, like sort of, they had their one, their one special talent. Um, one of my, my all time favorites, uh, I believe he made his first appearance at UFC two, but, uh, the sumo wrestler, Cedric Yarborough, <laughs> he was like six foot five, six foot six. And he was close to 600 pounds. Jeez. So and he got beat. He got beat by like a six foot two white guy. Sure. It was ridiculous. So does he? Does that just fall into? What the, I know you throw around these weight classes a lot on the website. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you know Greg's uh, our MMA UFC columnist on the website. And you throw a lot, you throw around a lot of weight classes. A lot of which just seem completely made up to me, especially the women's weight classes. <laughs> 
Um, but I, would that be so? Would an a sumo wrestler is that like a super heavyweight? What is what is that weight class and like what does that entail? Where does it start? And I guess there's just no max if the guy's six hundred pounds. Well, that was the thing with uh, with the original UFC. There was no weight class. It was just oh, whoever was the baddest of all of them. Interesting. Yeah. But I if like you were to that. talk about modern, yeah, I like that. Modern, I want that back. Yeah, see, that's where the commissions get involved, and they're like, you can't, you can't have a guy that's six hundred pounds fight a guy that's like one hundred and thirty-five pounds. You just can't do it. Why not? If that one hundred and thirty-five pound guy's a badass, he should be able to take that six hundred pounder down. Well, <laughs> true, I, I guess, but from like a just a, a an advantage standpoint, being heavier, you're always going to have a little bit of an advantage. Now, six hundred pounds, you're not as mobile, if that <laughs> makes sense. That is an understatement, so. I would think. Yeah, you're not you're not as spry. You're not you're not throwing a lot of high kicks at, at 600 pounds. Yeah, and you have the um, chance to lose because your ankles just give out. Yeah, so it's it 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 was really like the wild west uh, back then. Groin shots, headbutts, sort of <laughs> anything goes. Like one of the most ridiculous aspects of early <laughs> early UFC was Hoist uh, Gracie, who actually who ends up winning. You know, UFC one, which the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu name sort of started with that big victory. They were mm. known for their Jiu-Jitsu expertise, but that sort of started the you know, I guess explosion of Jiu-Jitsu, where you could pretty much Google Jiu-Jitsu and find a school within uh, you know a pretty pretty close distance to yeah, anywhere you're at. There's two outside my window right now, literally, and I think one yeah. of them's in my backyard. It it wouldn't shock me to be honest. I mean, they they they've kind of popped up everywhere. But his first fight um, <laughs> under the UFC label was against a guy named Art Jimerson, who was a boxer. Okay. Awesome. He wore one boxing glove. Awesome. He wore one boxing glove in the match, and he was quickly dispatched. And and that sort of, you know, it sort started to to bring, you know, that jujitsu style to, to the forefront. Gracie went on to win UFC one, um, repeated at UFC two, got hurt at UFC three. Um, but that's back when it was, it was tournament style. Everything was, you know, uh, you'd have to fight three to four times in a night. Yeah. Um, you know, last man standing competition pretty much. I love that. Um, Fundamentally, I'm much more interested in that than I am the current day UFC. Well, that, and that was the appeal. Like you, you say that, but like that was the appeal for people. You know, um, it, it all sort of started in a similar time frame to Pride in Japan, which was, you know, ridiculous, you know, no holds barred kind of, you know, certain things you couldn't do, but you could stomp people when they were on the ground and do things like that. But, you know, the United States government wasn't a huge fan of the fighting multiple times. Sure. Um, I believe it was referred to multiple times as human cockfighting. It was banned in different states. Like there's a famous story. They were supposed to supposed to have like UFC maybe 16 or 19. I can't remember the exact number, but it was supposed to be in New York State. And this mm. is how the original ban on MMA happened. They passed a law, sort of at like the 11th hour, and they ended up fighting in some small town in Alabama at some random civic center. Um, I love this. I but that, love that's this. sort of where it. Go ahead. No, I love this so much. I'm so into this. <laughs> I'm, te- I'm, I'm telling you, like, if you go back, and, and I have the luxury of, of, you know, having UFC fight pass, and I've had it for a couple years now, 
they have that whole fight library back on. And it was like a couple, maybe two months ago. Mm. Um, I was watching, like, I watched UFC 1, I watched UFC 2, and it's so weird, like, the production value and the way that it was set up. Like, they would just cut to, like, the announcers, and then, like, they'd, like, join a fight halfway through. Like, it was <laughs> so weird. Like, it was it was one of the more ridiculous things I've ever seen. But, you know, it's it, it was basically, like, unsanctioned bar fights that were just limited to one-on-one. Well, that's funny you said um, that, because I was just going to ask you, so this is basically tantamount to, like, sanctioned bum fights. Kind of, yeah. I mean, these guys, a lot of them were trained in different martial arts. But for the most part, it became weird physical battles where they would hit each other. And then you had like the real technical, you know, Hoist Gracie who was Mm -hmm. just out there choking everybody out that he could. But for the most part, if you go back and watch, it's a lot of guys just, you know, they have some sort of technique, but it goes out the window about two seconds in when they start walking towards each other. Right. I have a follow-up question. Unlike now. Before we get too far away, I have one follow-up question uh, to what you mentioned before. This gentleman who wore one glove, which hand? I think it was his left hand, if I remember correctly. So he's a, le- so he's a lefty stance, boxer? But I think so, yeah, if I remember correctly. Because right, it seems like there's a giant disadvantage to wearing gloves in a, in a UFC well, MMA-type fight. Well, yeah, because especially back then, I mean, there was no gloves. Now at least you have the four-ounce gloves uh-huh. that, that cover and leave your fingers exposed so you can grapple. Like, that guy had a real boxing glove. Like, it was like a 16-ounce <laughs> boxing glove on I, I'm so into this. But it was I, I the, the UFC back then was more of like a freak show, if mm. that makes sense. And that's not necessarily what it was billed as, but kind of, you know, if you ever see old promos like the original ones for when it was, you know, only on pay-per-view, those kind of those kind of scenarios, it was played up as like, you know, somebody might die if you watch <laughs> this. Like it, it, it was it was pretty ridiculous. And then eventually, you know, you started to get into more, you know, with, with athletic commissions and, and different things like that, where it became a much more regimented situation. Yeah, what what was the, the, the catalyst to take it from sort of like crazy backyard fighting to what, you know, closer to what it is today? Was it, you know, was it a change in the, the commissioner? Was it uh, just the regulatory committees? How did we get from, from A to it, it was... C, which we're at now? It was sort of a mix. So the athletic commissions were like, we can't sanction this. You saw states starting to ban this type of stuff. Mm. Um, And then also the original owners started to hit financial problems, you know, because they couldn't get places. Deals would fall out, things like that. Um, They they just couldn't afford to put these shows on or didn't have the money to do it. And in swooped three (laughs) uh, partners. Um, two of them being Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta, who were already super loaded um, because they, well, their dad started the station casinos, which people always say that I've never heard of a station casino. I think I saw one in Vegas over the weekend when I was there. Um, But apparently they have a ton of casinos all around the country um, that, that they own. And those two guys and Dana White, Stepped in, bought the UFC for $2 million, and essentially started to make some changes. Dana White came from the boxing world, um, not really well-known in the boxing world, 
but he kind of came from from that area and, and decided that they should make this more like boxing. And when was this? That's when where, did Dana White come in? Uh, hmm. Let me just make sure. I don't want to say the wrong thing. You know how that goes. I've, I've done it many, many times, Gregory. I do not worry <laughs> about it. Because this seems like this is sort of the shifting point from this is a, kind of just a, a random spectacle to this is the makings of a, a gigantic sport when Dana White comes in. It was 2001 is when they – they they really made the move and made the purchase of of what you see now in okay. the UFC. So it existed um, in that because, that that like sort of prehistoric form for like seven or eight years. Yeah, you, yeah, because I mean it started in 1993. So you're talking about seven seven to eight years before you know eventually Zufa, which is the company you know owned by Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta and Dana White before they stepped in uh, and, and made that purchase and kind of changed the, the whole landscape of everything. I would think a giant issue, especially in those early years, you talk about you know finding a place to fight, finding all of that. I would think insurance was a giant issue. How do you insure these people? I, I mean, back then, I'm sure, I'm sure it was a, a, re- a real situation for those guys because every if you watch those, those old tournaments, I mean, half the guys would fight one fight, and then they'd have to get a medical replacement because the guy who won couldn't continue. You know what I mean? So everyone was leaving with injuries, win or lose. So um, to, to find a company that's going to give you any type of insurance money for these guys to get them covered, it had to be a tall task. And I mean, especially when it's not as sanctioned in the original aspect of it, you know what I mean? Uh, as you move forward, obviously the commission does things and there's, and there's different situations that help with that. But in the early days, it had to have been an absolute logistical nightmare to get, get these guys insured. Yeah. This sounds like these guys were gladiators at this point. It was sort of like, if you've ever seen that movie, Bloodsport <laughs> with, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, sort oh, of like that. JCVD, one of, uh, JCVD's yeah. breakout hits. That is, that, that's, that's, that's going way back. Look, we can sit here and talk about the Jean-Claude Van Damme library for hours and hours and hours, but <laughs> Yeah, no. We can. I, oh man, I'm I, I got to tell you. I've I've said this many, many times over the course of these 15 or 16 minutes, but I am totally into this. Like this sounds crazy, it sounds awesome. I know it's not a sustainable thing that you can you, you can uh, do moving forward and it's not a business practice that makes a whole lot of sense and certainly would it would not be able to happen in modern day. But I am totally into this, just like absolute crazy, two people going at each other and, you know, you got to get through this guy to get through the next guy to get through the next guy so you can win a championship. Yeah, I mean, you kind of compare it to like similar ideas when you talk about like, pride who used to do their grand prix grand prix were basically big tournaments now they didn't always do every fight in one night it may be semifinals finals mm. or first round quarterfinals they used to do different things like that um you know that that tournament style it's still done in kickboxing you know k1 really doesn't exist anymore but they used to i guess it exists kind of but but that was that was sort of the i guess initial epicenter of like tournament fighting that's as well known as it is today. I mean, there's still, 
there, there's still kickboxing federations that do it. Um, I mean, even Bellator. Bellator did a did a, a four man tournament just maybe a year ago at this point, probably. They they did one for for one of their titles, and then um, Ryzen, which is the new sort of trying to resurrect pride in uh, in Japan, just did a heavyweight tournament where like basically the fights were like four days apart. It was like, oh, your first two rounds are this night, and like two days later, your second two fights if you win all, if you go all the way to the final. So, I mean, it still sort of exists. It just doesn't really exist in the same manner, if that makes sense. Yeah, so if you're interested. It's so crazy to think about it in those terms because, you know, we live in a world, especially in, in the, the more contact sports, the boxings and the, uh, and the mixed martial arts, where a guy will fight, and then he's, you know, it's nine months until that next fight. It, it is not well, and for his own, a quick yeah. turnaround. This is, it is not like, all oh, right, I won. Now I've got this guy tomorrow. Well, and for his own, for the fighter's own long-term safety, that's probably the way it should be. Yeah, of course. Because I mean, if you if you, if you talk about you talk about guys that get like knocked out cold, you know, mm-hmm. um, for example, uh, a guy like. John McDessie, right? The last time he fought was December, uh, November, December-ish. Um, he got he got knocked out with a spinning wheel kick by a guy named Lando Venata, who was fighting Sunday, or Saturday night, not Sunday, Saturday night. Um, and he was out cold before he hit the ground, right? Before he hit the ground, hit, you know, bounce his head off the mat. Like, that dude should take easily a year off. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's that makes more sense. Now you're talking about guys who, at least back in the day, they're getting in these brawls. Nobody has any technique. It's not like you're getting out of one of these fights unscathed. And, and so you, you take a bunch of punishment, and now you're going back out there, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes later to do it all over again. It was mayhem. It was absolute mayhem. Yeah, and it sounds amazing. But you, you <laughs> it was, about... and that's... You talked about the UFCs and the uh, the prides, and I think you know you mentioned Bellator as well. Who are, who are the main like uh, federations? Who are the main like leagues? What are what else is out there right now? And and who was there at the start? At the start, it was really kind of UFC in the United States and Pride in Japan, and, and those are kind of the two. I mean, you had King of Pancrase too, which was also uh, in Japan. That was that was out there, but that wasn't as popular. If you talk about, I mean, there are definitely guys that came out of there that eventually made, made waves elsewhere. Guys like Bass, uh, Bass, mm-hmm. Boss Rutten, Ken Shamrock, those kind of guys. Um, but really it was kind of just the UFC and pride. And, and eventually as the UFC got bigger, you would see guys go back and forth like Chuck Liddell, um, you know, while under UFC contract went and fought in pride, mm. um, and then as guys' pride contracts would come up, the UFC would try to grab up those stars for name value because the hardcore fans back then, they were into pride. They knew everything about guys like Mirko Krokop, Vanderlei Silva, uh, you know, Fedor Emelianenko, uh, all those big names that ended up coming out of pride, the Noguera brothers, you know, those guys. And when those contracts came up, the UFC was like, we need to get these guys here and bring eyes to our product, you know? Mm. Um now you jump to, you know, 15 years later, Pride's no more. The UFC bought it. Um, oh, interesting. The UFC, the UFC, the UFC kind of buys everybody at this point. Yeah, they're it like, makes sense. It's a good business like, practice. 
Yeah, I mean, they're like the WWE. If you could compare it, like WWE eventually, you know, took WCW down, purchased it, same with ECW, those those big ones, and it became one big thing. That's kind of what the UFC's done. You know, there was, if you go back to like five years ago, mm. ten, five to six years ago, you're talking about you had Elite XC, that got, that got thrown out basically because Kimbo Slice lost, so they didn't have a ton uh, of events, but he went down and the whole company crumbled. Mm. Um, but you had Strike Force, which was on Showtime. Um, that was big, uh, eventually bought by the UFC. Uh, the WEC, which was primarily, it started out as like all weight classes, like they had everything from bantamweight, flyweight, all the way up to, to heavyweight, but then eventually they dropped a lot of the higher weight classes and just kept it with a lot of the lower guys, guys like Uriah Faber, Dominic Cruz, Demetrius Johnson, they kind of all came out of there. Uh, UFC purchased that when they reinstituted a lot of those lower weight classes. Um, they, they bought them. So now, in reality, there, there's really only two major MMA brands um, that, that get a lot of play. I mean, there's tons of, of lower-level ones across the world, but mm. when you talk about major, you're talking UFC, Bellator, and that's that's kind of it. Now you have Ryzen, but that's Japan, and it's kind of kind of crazy. You know, there's not a ton of uh, not a ton of fighters, if that makes mm. sense. There's also one uh, FC is another Japanese-based promotion. Um, they had a couple a couple decent names out there. One of the big guys who people always want to see in the UFC, uh, Ben Askren. He's a welterweight. He's just unbelievable wrestler like olympic caliber wrestler um but doesn't really get along with dana white mm. and when you don't get along with the guy that signs most of the paychecks there's a problem you know what i mean yeah where's so, where's bellator based is that united los states? angeles okay so it is yeah it's, it's united, united states. states it's it's actually owned um and i was gonna gonna go right into this but uh it's actually owned by viacom so oh, okay like they they do shows on Spike. They used to do them weekly. They may they, they do them pretty often, um, but a lot of times it's a lot of their fights aren't necessarily household name guys. They still do numbers to your hardcore you know MMA fan. Like if you talk like you know Kimbo Slice drew big numbers. They do a lot of stuff like that to to attract eyeballs to it and hope that they're sort of homegrown guys perform and create names for themselves and all the eyes are watching, if that makes sense. Right. And, and just recently that uh, really big name was back in Bellator, right? You, I remember you wrote an article about that. Yeah. Tito Ortiz uh, went against Chael Sonnen uh, in one of the more interesting fights. I think I've seen um, weird accusations of things being fixed mm. and, you know, just, Absolute insanity. And then they were supposed to have a big card last weekend, or no, sorry, two weekends ago. Um, Fedor Milianenko, arguably the best heavyweight in MMA history, um, was supposed to fight a former UFC guy, Matt Mitrione, but Mitrione had to pull out the day of the fight because he had kidney stones. Sure. And couldn't couldn't get through the pain, so he ended up having to cancel it. But they, they do they do do some things. You you actually are seeing now uh, in this new sort of UFC world, they're letting guys go, and the, these guys are signing with Bellator. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot of aspects to that. One of the big things is the UFC to try and 
conform and make itself more of that normal sport went to a uniform-based, you know, fighting uh, fighting equipment. So everything's made by one company. You can't oh, have sponsorships on your your you can't have sponsorships on your shorts. Oh. Um, you know, it's it's you basically wear like a uniform, and it's made by Reebok, and that's all you can wear. You don't have any other options. Um, thank God they made more colors. It used to just be like black and white or white and black. It was really really rough when it first came out. Now they've added more colors and more variations, so so they they look a lot better. But you see a lot of guys who lost a ton of money from their sponsorships right. now that they can't wear them. They can't wear them anymore, so. They're leaving the UFC and, and heading towards Bellator because, one, it's not like Bellator is owned by, you know, you and me, where you might have to worry about money Pride California. every week. Pride you, California, you know, baby. <laughs> exactly, it's exactly. Um, one, one weight I, class, I hope you have a good I've, financial guy. Uh, yeah, excellent, excellent. And one weight class. I've made that decision, too. Just one weight class That's for everybody. That's fine. I'm agreeing to that. All right, cool. Um, but, like, if, if when you look at it, those guys lost a ton of money not being able to have those sponsorships anymore. So you see more and more guys choosing to leave the UFC because there's a structured pay scale for Reebok. Like, oh, you know, you've had X amount of fights, you get this amount of dollars. You've had this many career fights, you get this amount of dollars per fight from the Reebok sponsorship. Huge controversy over the last couple, eh, year and a eh, probably two years now at this point. Um, cause it, I was still living in Oregon when it kind of first started. Um, it's, it was, it's definitely been, been an interesting transition, but now you're seeing, you know, the number three in the world light heavyweight signing with Bellator, uh, in Ryan Bader, you see, uh, Rory McDonald left and he was arguably sort of that next heir apparent to, to George St. Pierre, um, for the UFC and their Canada fan base. He left now he's in Bellator, Phil Davis, another guy who, uh, was a really top contender in the light heavyweight division, left, went to Bellator, heavyweights, Matt Mitrione, you know, guys guys with some names in the UFC leaving and going to Bellator. And that's that's going to be great for the sport as we keep moving forward because it's going to bring more eyes to, to Bellator. Well, that's kind of my, my next question is, so is this Bellator really picking up market share or is it still to the point where, you know, it's kind of, not a substantial amount of the market share that Bellator has got. It's, you know, dominated by the UFC. For the most part, it's still dominated. I mean, I don't think, and they're, they're run by a guy named Scott Coker. He's sort of, he's their president. And he is, he's a guy who was at at the helm for strike force and, and ran that for years. And eventually, you know, it got bought by the UFC. He worked for the UFC for like 20 minutes. Uh, during that, uh, and then eventually left to become Bellator's president. And I've heard him say that they're not really trying to compete with the UFC. They're trying to be their own thing, if that makes sense. Um, like, so I don't necessarily think that they're really digging a ton into the market share. It's not like, you know, you have to pick pick sides. Oh, I can only be Bellator. I can only be UFC. I think mm. their goal is to just try and pull in as many MMA fans as possible. And by getting you know, names that people recognize and advertising as much as they possibly can, they're trying to do that with the occasional freak show fight, you know, thrown in there. Nothing wrong with that. Aside from what you already mentioned with the uniform differences, are there any other real differentiating factors between Bellator and UFC, or is it pretty much a standard set of rules? 
Uh, pretty much standard set of rules, but stricter drug testing in the UFC than uh, Bellator. I think you mentioned that. Uh, I think you mentioned that in a couple articles. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, but that's because the UFC does their own privatized drug testing through uh, the United States Anti-Doping Agency. You know, they brought them in as sort of a third party. Bellator just goes based on the athletic commissions. Mm. So it's not as strict. You still get tested. It's definitely like you will get caught if you're messing around. But uh, it's not like anytime, any place, anywhere we can come find you like uh, the UFC does now. Yeah, you've mentioned that before. That's that's horrifying. Well, dude, some of the stories, some of the stories that you hear different fighters talk about, like, you know, a a guy like Tim Kennedy, for example, Tim Kennedy is an army ranger, right? He's, he's the real deal. Like he's, he's been on like ISIS hit lists, Mm. like listed, like, Hey, we need to get this guy or whatever. You know, that's what they say. You know, he, he rolled up to his house from a workout and there was a guy sitting in a car in his driveway. And he's like, Dude, what are you doing here? Like, he, pulled, he pulled his gun out, from what I remember hearing about that story. Yeah. It was like, like, who are you? Like, identify yourself. And, like, they just show up to gyms randomly. Like, they're, they're dead serious about, about any time, any place, anywhere, which is great because it keeps the sport a lot more clean. And going back to the fighter safety aspect, when you don't have a guy that's juiced to the gills, you know, you're not going to do as much damage if you catch somebody. All right, well, do you think there's anything else? I think we've, you know, we're pretty much like 33, 34 minutes into this. Is there anything else we really need to know about the very, very beginnings of the the sport? No, I think that that kind of covers it. I mean, when you talk about, like, the original tournaments and and sort of where the changing of the the guard, I guess, uh, per se, happened, that's kind of it. All right. Well, we're certainly going to keep learning more and more every week, but... uh, the second half of our shows is going to be more of an unstructured talk time, and uh, let's let's do that now, Greg. You know, I would imagine that a, a large portion, and you know, apologies to our listeners and warnings uh, for future shows. I think there's probably going to be a lot of Philadelphia sports talk. We're both big Philadelphia sports fans. I want to talk about the 76ers for a minute because you know I always want to talk about the 76ers. Since, I don't know if I want to be a Philadelphia sports fan anymore. I know. Can I opt out? Uh, no, I, I do not allow that. You're you are a fan. <laughs> Look, you have the right to not be a fan of that sport, but you do not have the right to okay. not be a fan of that team. Um, Can as, I be a fan until they're good again, or not be a fan until they're good again? Well, there's a lot of those. There's a there's a lot <laughs> of those. I, it was shocking, just shocking to me, how many Villanova banners I started to see pop up. When uh, oh when we got good in that in the tournament last year, it's funny and it was funny with every subsequent round, uh, the Wildcats advanced. More banners kept popping up. Oh, car flags! That's uh, how you know car yeah. flags. I remember the the Phillies in the World Series. A lot of you write a lot of car flags. Uh, it's a mess. But uh, the, the one that the one that sticks out to me the most because when the Phillies were in the World Series, I was in college, so mm-hmm. I wasn't in the greater Philadelphia area. But when the Sixers went to the 2001 NBA Finals, yeah. I could drive. I could drive from where my parents live to my grandparents' house, uh, which is you know, 25 minutes without mm. traffic, and you would see 75 car flags yeah. easily, easily. Yeah. Where are those? And that's now? little kid me not paying attention, like barely paying attention and counting. 
Yeah, it's a mess, and Homerism is certainly a thing, and uh, Fairweather fandom is certainly a thing, and those those fans who maybe some of those were starting to show back up on the 76ers bandwagon in late December and early January have now certainly jumped back off. We uh, we saw we saw a trade that it just frustrated me in the Nerlens Noel trade. Nerlens gets traded to the Dallas Mavericks for Justin Anderson and uh, top. Top 18 protected first-round pick, which is almost certainly not going to convey, and it's going to become a 2017 and 2020 second-round pick, giving the 76ers four second-round picks this year. So, hey, that's something to look forward to. What, what did you think? What did you think of this when you heard it? Because I, I have a thought process behind it. I'd like to know what your reaction was. Uh, hated it. Straight up, hated it. Um, uh, it was. <laughs> Here's my thing. I was always a bigger Nerlens Noel guy than I was an Okafor guy. Yeah. Um, of course, looking back, I hated the initial trade for Nerlens Noel because I like Drew Holiday. Whatever. That's that's neither here nor there. Um, but I just think you got rid of the wrong guy. And I, everybody yeah. goes, well, what if what about free agency? Like he's not going to sign with us. Mm-hmm. They might, or or make a better trade. I mean, all the rumors that you heard about the potential options that of unloading Nerland to someone else, and that's what we came up with. Like, I don't know, man. It, it, it took. I already wasn't a huge Colangelo guy to begin with. Oh yeah. So, so a move like this, a move like this, doesn't really restore my faith in in what's going to happen going forward. So, objectively, Okafor is a very, very. I don't want to say terrible. It's not fair. He's a very skilled offensive player, but also a very inefficient player to have on the court. His defense yeah. is amongst the worst I've ever seen for an NBA player. It was there's a couple of cutups from the 76ers Heat game the other day where <laughs> Hassan just grabs or Hassan Whiteside from the Heat just grabs a rebound and Jalil just kind of stands there flat-footed as as uh, Whiteside goes back well, up. It's it's embarrassing. Even before even right before that play uh Dragic came down and mm. Ogilvy didn't put his hands up. That that's like me after four minutes winded and I'm like, forget it. I'm not putting my hand up because I'm not going to block it anyway. And this is a men's league game. Like that's the style of defense that was being employed. Yeah, it's disappointing too because I thought there was a real chance that look, I, we learned the other day that that Embiid was not going to play again this year. I think that was pretty much a foregone conclusion for some time before that. And I thought that these last 25 games or so of the season would be something of a showcase for Jalil Okafor. And I thought it was something that he would respond to. You know, obviously he's never going to be a defensive player, but if we could get similar numbers to his rookie season, something like 17 points a game, something like seven rebounds a game, that seems that seems realistic from a guy who is as skilled as he is and uh, give, who yeah. theoretically would be given the opportunity to play quite a bit. It's just it's not going to happen. The last two games, Rashawn Holmes has got more time than than uh, Okafor. But let's so let's get back to Okafor in just one second. I'm going to talk wrap up the Noel trade. So you're right. I, I don't. I, I'm kind of torn in that. I don't think they took a worse deal than than what else was available because that doesn't make sense. It did come out that the Celtics offered a first round pick. I'm not sure when that uh, that, that first round pick was in terms of years. But I do understand not wanting to trade Noel to the Celtics because you're basically giving the Celtics the one piece that they don't have right now. 
which is you know a defensive anchor at the five. So the only way I can justify this is we go back to when when Nerlens was asking for a trade some two months ago, three months ago, talking about how the situation was stupid and it didn't make sense and it had to be resolved. The only way I can justify this is if after that happened, somebody pulled him aside and said, hey, you need to, sh- you need to shut the heck up. Let's, uh, I, I mean, I guess I already said one other word, but let's keep it at that. You need to shut the heck up. Just keep your mouth shut. Be a good teammate. And, you know, we promise that we will trade you at the trade deadline. But we're not going to trade you right now. Your value is in the toilet. You know, we're going to get pennies on the dollar in return. So that's pretty much the only way I can justify it is if there was a deal and it didn't make sense in their minds to to keep him around because, you know, he he would go into restricted free agency. Somebody would offer him a big contract. The Sixers have the option to match or not match. And it's a whole big thing for a guy who clearly didn't want to be here. Um, But the return is the return is horrendous. Justin Anderson is he seems like a very nice guy and a very hardworking athlete. (laughs) But he's just not much of a basketball player. Some of uh, some of his shot attempts, especially deeper shot attempts, have been in the not close variety. Um, I don't know. Maybe they think they can develop him somewhere along the lines of Covington. But uh, yeah, it's it, it's tough. It's tough to watch that and to get what is basically going to be a fringe rotation guy. And a second round pick, and not even a high second round pick, mind you. You know, it's going to be at the end, the, the bottom, bottom of the first ten of uh, picks in the second round. For, yeah, this is that's a pick that you stash in Europe. Yeah, for a guy like Noel, it, that's tough. I understand that you want to resolve this big man issue, and they, I certainly was behind them trading Ilyas over to the Hawks. I just I can't get behind this. And watching just now we get to watch Okafor play with with Simmons and Embiid out for the rest of the season, and it's just it's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. The, the Sixers went from like appointment television when Embiid was out there, yeah, to I don't even know when they're on at this point. Like, yeah, I'll turn it on if I see it, but I'm not actively seeking out a game, Sadly, which is a real bummer because yeah. there was a lot of excitement. Sadly, I still do seek out those games, but but you're absolutely right. The the feeling around watching a 76ers game is incredibly different. I it was I remember you know naive as it may sound, I remember sitting there thinking as they won you know eight of ten games in that stretch in December January, like you know is the playoffs crazy? And this is back when back when Embiid looked like just the next coming of of Jesus Christ and. Presumably, we had Ben Simmons coming back this season. You know, you get to thinking like, is it is it impossible that they're going to make a run at the, that eight seed this year? To the point where, uh, you know, I it's I, I like watching Sarich play. He he plays hard. I like watching Covington play. He plays hard. I've grown to like T.J. McConnell. Again, he plays hard. Common theme here. But <laughs> I, I I I hope they don't win another game. I, I really do. I don't think they will. Why? Well, I, I can't imagine a scenario where they don't win another game, but I really hope they don't. And the one, the one positive that came out of this trade deadline was the Kings' decision to just, just blow their team up in trading Cousins to the Pelicans, and you know we have the right to swap first-round picks with Sacramento. So, 
look, the, the Kings had that one weird game immediately after trading Cousins where everybody played above their abilities. And, you know, you see that a lot. We've seen Yeah, that's going to happen. We've seen more what I expected that Kings team to be over the last couple of games, including last night when they lost to the Nets, the Nets just the Nets' 10th win of the season. So, you know, if we can finish, you know, the Sixers finished with the fourth worst record, it's going to be tough to get below the uh, the Suns or the or the Lakers, and the Nets are a foregone conclusion at one. And then the Kings are five and six. You know, that's that's a pretty good shot to land a top three pick, and that's gotta yeah. be that's gotta be what the goal of this season is. Not only do you want to land one of those top three picks, but also somebody's got to move up and push the Lakers out of that top three, so the Sixers get that second first round pick. That's all we need. That's all we need. Give me two lot. Give me two top fives, and I'll uh, I'll be a happy guy. Yeah, I mean that would be that would be unbelievable, and it, it's actually. It would be a really interesting situation if the Sixers ended up picking one and four because it seems like the top four at this point, well, the top three at this point are unquestionably Josh Jackson from Kansas, Markel Fultz from from Washington, and Lonzo Ball from UCLA in whatever order you rank them. But then the four seems to be another point guard, Dennis Smith Jr. from NC State, and you know guys like Jason Tatum from Duke and Jonathan Isaac from Florida State, and the French point guard whose last name I can't pronounce, and you know. Potentially a couple of other guys are in that second tier, but if if Philadelphia does end up picking one and four, you know it seems like Fultz is probably the guy who makes the most sense. But you know, do you do you risk it and do you do you pick Josh Jackson number one, knowing that you'll get one of those other three point guards at number four? Uh, I think you almost have to. It, it's sort of that. Uh... It's sort of that that same scenario um, from a few years ago that involved Okafor, actually, uh, and D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns, you know, where it was, okay, if you pick one or two, you're going to get one of these two big guys, and the third pick is going to settle for D'Angelo Russell. Now, obviously, that's not how it shook out. You know, everything kind of changed when the Lakers took Russell, but it's a very similar situation. I cursed a lot when the Lakers took Russell. Yeah, I think I think we all did. With that said, I think we, we all didn't did. end up missing anything. No, no. In the long run, it's sort of the same result no matter what. So, um, yeah, it, it's tough because especially knowing what we know now, boy, would would Porzingis have looked perfect next to Embiid, and would that have been this, yeah. this weird generational? duo at at the big man positions a couple of super talented and everybody clowned phil for that pick oh yeah oh yeah. yeah well he didn't want it he wanted okafor everybody knows that of course yeah but good old sam stick to your guns hinky well i mean by all, uh, by all nah, accounts by all accounts sam hinky was pro okafor now it's worth pointing out that okafor didn't he wasn't willing to work out for the 76ers because you know they saw the situation that the team was in, having Embiid and Noel on the roster already, so he didn't work out for the Sixers. By all accounts, and you know who knows how much of this is urban legend at this point, but by all accounts, Hinky wanted to draft Porzingis, and the front office pushed him into taking the safer pick in Okafor, given you know you just spent two years prior to that with guys who did not play for the team that year. <laughs> Yeah, so let's let's pick the guy who uh, said he doesn't want to work out for us. That makes sense. Well, either way. But boy, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, my friend. Especially in the NBA. I know it is, and I know that 
especially right before that Porzingis pick, and he finally broke a trend of a lot of really disappointing international players. It, but man, it's just it's so hard to not dream of a, a front court trio of Ben Simmons, Kristaps Porzingis, and Joel Embiid. The NBA has never seen anything like that before. No, it would be it, w- it would be something for the absolute ages, to be honest. Well. Uh, hey, Robert Covington and uh, Daria Saric and uh, Rashawn Holmes is pretty good, too. <laughs> well, here, here's my bigger question um, uh, when it comes to the Sixers. Is there a reason why we just pretend guys aren't hurt for like three weeks and then we go, ah, we're just kidding, he's hurt. He's out for the year. So like, I, th- I the think Colangelo is a scumbag. The whole Simmons debacle, I'm actually more upset about that than the Embiid one. Whatever. I'm used to it with Embiid. Like, yeah. he's hurt. He's out for the year. That is just, that's just kind of been as, as fun as his 31 games have been. Right. You know, the, the knock has been the injury-prone situation. Right? So, like, but with the Simmons thing, you know, they came back early January and said, all clear, mm-hmm. you know. No damage in his foot. Now they're saying, eh, we might have injected some stuff, you know, just to rehab it because it's not as clear as we thought. Like, what? Yeah. How is that a thing? Yeah, I think, you know, and I, I tweeted this out like a week and a half ago, but it's, it, it seems like Colangelo is basically doing his best Sam Hinkie impersonation, but without the abilities of Sam Hinkie. It's... Yeah. You know, Hinky won every single trade. Hinky had a plan for every single contingency. Colangelo is just trying to figure stuff out. With with Brian Colangelo, we get all of the stuff we hated about Sam Hinky and the secrecy about the injuries and all of that, without any of the upside. I just I think I think Brian Colangelo is such a scumbag. I, I it's hard to root for that guy. Also Scott O'Neill, who I also think is kind of a scumbag, one of the Sixers owners. <laughs> So. Yeah, it's 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 it, it, it's so weird how different the perspective is. Only two months later, like it's it's really tough, really what, really tough. What makes me mad is that Colangelo is gonna look great two years from now. Once, yeah, look, I I don't I don't know that Embiid's ever gonna be a guy who plays seventy five games in a season, but I also don't think this is indicative of further injury problems. This is. This was a freak accident. He we hyperextended his knee, and that stuff happens. It looks bad with everything else, but you know it is what it is. How it was handled, that was terrible. Uh, it, letting him play in that Houston game is borderline criminal, if you ask me. Knowing what they knew, and if the guys the guys heard enough that he's going to miss eleven of twelve games, but he plays in the Houston game because it's on national television, and you take one second, look he. Embiid was great in that game. I think it was 26-9, and nine, and something like 3 of 4 from 3. Tremendous game. But the first second he walked onto the court, you could tell that that guy was not healthy. He was not moving well. Yeah. He was limping around. He was playing because, one, I think he was getting Eastern Conference Player of the Week award at the game, and, two, it was a national TV game against the Rockets. I think that is a horrible move. And the argument that people make, I actually got into a, a little Twitter argument about this very thing yesterday with the, uh, the Philadelphia-based sports website, philofans.com, which is a great website, by the way. Uh-oh. You know, Don't take it. I have no, no criticisms against them. It's an excellent uh, bunch of message boards and stuff like that. But 
I just I, I think it's it's horrible. The the argument they make is that Embiid, you know, he wasn't telling the truth about how much pain he was in and that he talked the coaches into letting him play. Look, if a player can talk the coaches into letting him play when the coaches know he shouldn't, we have problems far greater than the injury. Yeah, of that Joel means the Embiid. coaches and the training the, the coaches and the training staff aren't doing their their job if that's the case. Like that's that, that that's terrible. No, I agree completely. And Simmons thing, it look five years in a row, the Philadelphia 76ers have had a big man drafted in the top six picks miss the first the, their entire season. Now you know two of those were two of those were uh, Embiid, but but this is this is endemic of a larger problem. And I, I you know I tweeted out that the Sixers need to fire their entire training staff and just bring in the best group of people that they can find this off season. And, and the argument is that these were freak injuries and some of them were sustained prior to the team, you know, the team drafting these guys. And that's true, but how things were handled once these players got here, that is on these trainers. That is on that medical staff. And the Simmons thing, as you said before, it's a mess. Like I, there's no way that we didn't know that the growth, the, the, the healing of the Jones fracture wasn't wasn't going like it was supposed to. And what did he say? It wasn't full healing, is what Colangelo said. And then they did the, the yeah. injection this week, this uh, the stem cell injection. Why didn't we start with that? Like you you hear these solutions to these problems. Like why would you? You know, it seems like there's no there's no. This isn't another surgery. This isn't something that's going to set Ben back. Why would we not do this as just a just-in-case kind of thing? Well, Chris, are you now a doctor? Yes, yes, I am. Did, did, did you see – because that's the attitude that they have. That The fact that Colangelo went on Comcast Sportsnet and actually said that to Barkham when he was asked a direct question, it's yeah. like, dude, like, just answer the question. Like, it's, it's not – you don't need to, to – you don't need to tell somebody, oh, what are you, a doctor? What are you, 12? What kind of yeah. argument is that? Like, yeah. just be forthcoming. Like, you jack ticket prices up because Embiid was playing so well. They started winning. Mm-hmm. You know, you do you do all these things. You raise season ticket prices for people who have already paid. I mean, obviously, those are stories you see here and there on Twitter and from people who are in those situations. So you can't 100% confirm them. But, but I mean, you're doing things like you have a successful team. And then when people have questions, you're like, get out of here. Like, that, that's not yeah. – that, None not the of way your business – yeah, exactly. It's everybody's business because you're now charging exorbitant prices, and I have a team that's worse than the team that had like 11 wins last year playing to, every night. To put this outside in, of Sarich. Yeah, to put this an uh, interesting comparison, let's look at what happened with Kevin Durant and the Warriors last week. Durant gets hurt, you know, gets injured, goes in for an MRI. I believe the MRI was at 9:19 at night Pacific time. 7:11 the next morning Pacific time again. The Warriors released a full statement on the Kevin Durant injury in terms of what happened, what the expected time frame is, and what they're looking for. Now I don't know. First of all, there might have been a HIPAA violation in there somewhere, but I don't. We're never going to get this kind of full transparency from the 76ers. But at least don't actively lie to us. That's the stuff that makes right. me mad. It's. I feel like we're constantly being deceived. Well, there's just, yeah, that, that's that's the weird veil of secrecy that they have. It doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense to to be honest. It, 
there's you're you're not doing your fans any favors by doing this. You know what I mean? Like let everybody know what's going on. I... People will support your team. We're not not everybody's going to run away like they did prior because they actually see real promise. Yeah, you know I, what I mean? I think you risk actually pushing people. Away. Like there are like I'm not not to blow my own horn here, and this may be calling me an idiot more than anything else, but there are. Not many bigger 76ers fans than me. I'm a giant 76ers fan. Over the last three, four years of absolute trash, I've missed maybe two games. And, like, I find myself getting sick of this team. And I find myself thinking that this team is hard to root for. Because people like Colangelo, yeah, daddy gave you a job, and now you have this attitude that, you know, you are good at it. At one point... One point, this guy wins executive of the year, largely because of the the talent laid by the previous general manager in Toronto. This is a guy who drafted Andrea Bargnani, by the way, and Brian Colangelo. <laughs> um, wins executive of the year one time, and suddenly he has a reputation of being this incredible executive. I don't see it. I just don't think he's good at this. I don't. I don't think, think he is either. And I think he's a little rat. It, it, it yeah. makes it hard. It makes it hard for me to support this team. And it makes it hard knowing what's coming. Like I alluded to before, you know, two years from now, when, when you know, Ben's back next year and God willing, he's the player we expect him to be. And let's say Joel plays 55, 60 games a year. And you have potentially two first round picks this year, two high first round picks. And if you don't, you have you have a very high first round pick coming in 2018 from the Lakers. Then you have a very, very high uh, first-round pick coming from the Kings in 2019. Talent is going to keep flowing into this team, and it has nothing to do with Brian Colangelo, and he is going to be the one from, to, that benefits from it. Next year, you potentially yeah. have, you know, let's say you get the number one pick and you do take Markel Foles, who, you know, people expect because you need the perimeter scoring. That trio of Fultz, Simmons, and Embiid is as good a trio in the NBA, and you can just you could argue that it's the best young trio of players in the NBA. Minnesota's got some certainly has some talented players, but you know the def- the defensive inefficiencies of Carl Anthony Towns are you know very real. For whatever reason, despite being an incredible athlete with long arms, Andrew Wiggins is a very mediocre defensive player. The the trio of Fultz. And um, Sims and Embiid can be as good as anybody, and it's only a matter of time until they're winning games. They were, they were eight and two, eight and two, and between December and January, at one stretch this year. This team is gonna be good, and it, and Brian Colangelo is, is gonna look great because of it, and he's gonna have absolutely nothing to do with it. <laughs> Which is the most ridiculous part. His next job will be based off all the stuff that was basically gifted to him here. Which is crazy. Yeah, and I, I hope he's looking for that next job sooner than later. If only. Well, at what point, if we did get the number one overall pick, at what point does Fultz get like hurt so he has to miss his first year? Is that well, a thing? That's like a new... Funny enough, right now uh, Fultz is being held out because he's got a knee issue. <laughs> of course he is. So <laughs> he kind of fits in perfectly. And, uh, you know, there's also... There's also an argument to be made that Lonzo Ball would fit in perfectly because Philadelphia's got a long and proud history of crazy sports parents, and LeVar Ball Yeah, dude, but he's is... only allowed to play for the Lakers. Oh, my God. LeVar Ball is one of the craziest sports parents I've ever seen. That's going to be such great entertainment. 
like it's going to be excellent. I can't. I actually can't wait. Like I need, I need this this to go forward. I need him to get into the NBA like ASAP. Uh-huh. It's so crazy. It's so crazy because I, like doing what I do on the side and watching AAU games and things like that. Like I see th- this exact persona. Yeah. I see it in the stands every weekend. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But now you're you're still doing it on the NCAA and you're trying to do it on the NBA level. Like it's crazy to me the way people talk and act. You know, there's an interesting conversation to be had about LeVar Ball. Is he a good father or a bad father? Is he just is he just he he loves and supports his children so much or is he just a naive idiot? I think he is a good dad in the way that he supports, but I think he supports in the wrong way or too much if that makes sense. Like it's great to have your kids back. It's great to be there and and you know support them in everything that they do and, and make sure that they have all the opportunities that every, you know, every kid has. Yeah. It's great. Like that's, that's awesome. That is, you know, ad- admirable as a parent. But when you start doing things like saying your kids better than Steph Curry <laughs> on national radio, yes. saying your kid will only play for the Lakers, but then retroactively being like, nah, I didn't say that. No. I said, I was on the radio. I said he wanted to play. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was on the radio, but I'm being misquoted. Yeah, like, like that's that's the kind of thing where it's like, all right, dude, like that's too much. You you hit the point where it's too much. Well, he also said uh, Lonzo was going to be the first pick in the draft this year. Leangelo was going to be the first pick in the draft next year. By the way, he's a three star recruit going to UCLA, and his youngest son Lamelo would be uh, the first overall pick in the 2020 NBA draft. Lamelo plays less defense than I do. Yeah. If all of his clips are, if all of his, cl- his clips are as real as I can see them, well, I don't high, see any school, defense. He's a high school freshman or sophomore, so I'm not super worried about that. But no, nah, neither am I. But it was more of the the point. But yeah, you can't you, you can't be that guy. You can't come out and say these crazy things because one, you're putting unnecessary pressure on your kid. Yeah, and you're bringing unnecessary attention to your kid. Right. Like, everybody knows who Lonzo Ball is. If you follow college basketball, even in the least, you know who he is. You know who he plays for. Like, you know, that that's really what you need. You don't need to be out there continuing to push your Lonzo Ball rhetoric. Like, we understand that he's a good player. Like, yeah. he's a consensus top three pick in everybody's mock draft. Like, come on, man. We get it. Yeah, I said this in the the article I wrote about this crazy LeVar Ball comment, but Lonzo Ball has been so impressive that he has made people overlook a hideously ugly jump shot. The fact that he came from a system at Chino Hills where they, they did not play any offense, any defense at all, and all of that, he has, he has moved past that and made people forget about all of that by how great he's been. And at this point, the biggest concern about Lonzo Ball has got to be his father. Like that's the big yeah, concern. Ab- absolutely. I, <laughs> there was a, one of my favorite LeVar Ball stories is the there was a documentary uh, about the Ball family, and probably produced by LeVar for all I know, and they had the kids at Christmas, and like all their Christmas presents were the LeVar Ball's brand Big Baller merchandise. Oh no. my God. He uh, LeVar went on to say that. That Michael Jordan and uh, and the shoe company better pay up because otherwise 
Lonzo is just going to go with the big baller brand. There's no way. All right. Now now that I know this information, yeah. this guy's clinically insane. You're challenging Nike? Are you, are you legitimately challenging Nike? Well, is that said, what we're doing? He said his kid's better than Steph Curry. So I don't think he's worried about taking on a, a, an elderly Michael Jordan. He's challenging Nike, Under Armour, Reebok, Adidas. Is N1 still a thing? Can he challenge them next? Yeah. Like, Puma. Don't I mean, Puma. Come on. Uh, I forgot about Puma. I, I did. <laughs> what what insanity. That's the kind of stuff where you just you, you see it and you're just like, what are you doing? Like, what goes through your head? Like, I, just t- take a second, be a reasonable person, and think before you say anything. Because if not, you end up, especially in today's society, with the way news spreads and Twitter and Facebook and everything, as soon as you say one thing that's dumb or ridiculous, it gets out there, and then everybody you're just blanketed is like, well, that guy's obviously a lunatic. Yeah, you know, in Lonzo Ball's defense, he does seem like a fairly grounded kid who uh, who doesn't think these he things does. about himself. But it's it stinks that his father is causing the problems that he is. You're just overstepping boundaries. Like yeah. that's that's really what it comes down to is overstepping boundaries that that you need to really honor because if anything, you know, for guys like Lavar Ball, you know, there are. Tons of guys who don't have the son that's Lonzo who's as good as he is. You yeah. know what I mean? That's the scarier part about the whole situation. You yeah. know what I mean? LeVar Ball is that – he's that seventh-grade basketball coach who seems incredibly cool at the beginning of the season, but everybody hates by the end. Yeah. Just the kids, actually, don't, the kids don't listen to. It just – it's anarchy. With that said, if the Sixers were in position to draft Lonzo Ball and – Putting aside the the issues about whether or not he's the best fit, given he's a he's a primary ball handler, and you know, we also have Ben Simmons on the roster, would you have any hesitancy to draft Ball, given everything you know about his father, or do you just not really care and assume it won't be a thing? I mean, at this point, I, I probably wouldn't care, mm-hmm. uh, only because we seem to be dealing with a similar situation um, already. So why worry about it? You know what I mean? If the talent fits. And even if it's not the exact fit, but it's it makes the most sense, you have to go with the best player on the board. So I would have no problem taking it. Yeah, I don't – I mean, I guess my issues with about his jump shot are less and less of a concern with each passing week. But it is just so hideously ugly. <laughs> it's not the cleanest. It certainly is not. How is how somebody taught to shoot like that? Like the other brothers, both kind of ugly jump shots too, but better than that. How do you? How does a human being learn to shoot like this? I I don't know. It's it's really strange. Um, really strange. Well, you know. So we're not concerned. I I tend to agree with you here in that it's just you know it would be a nuisance. It would be a story, but. It's not really going to affect anything. I, I mean, there is. A, I think there is something of legitimate concern that, the especially the father is going to try to push him towards the Lakers. So, you know, is that is that something you have to worry about long term with him resigning with the team? Uh, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean that's that's obviously got to be got to be a question. But unfortunately, I think that the the Levar Ball 
situation is going to become more and more prevalent as we move forward with the NBA and the next generation of talent. Well, yeah, as if we didn't have a big enough problem with AAU basketball completely ruining the development of uh, of young players in the country today. Now we need overbearing Man. parents as well. I watched a documentary on Netflix a couple weeks ago, and I can't think of the name of it. But the uh, the main guy that they they talked about was um, first name is Parker. He's a, he's the point guard for Arizona now. Oh, Parker, um, Parker Jackson. But it was Parker. all about yes, that's exactly who it is. Um, but it was all about him and his development coming up, you know, through AAU and what he was going to do for college and the different shoe companies that he wanted to be affiliated with. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's crazy. It is crazy. And his, his dad was very, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say overbearing, but kind of, but also sort of like irrational to what the situation uh, really is, if that makes sense. Like, it, it's almost like you're, you're too, you're too in tune with like, all right, he's got to play for this AAU team because they wear Nike. Yeah. And they're sponsored by Nike. You always want to be associated with Nike because Michael Jordan wore Nike. You know what I mean? Like, right. uh, It's ridiculous. Uh, last thing, really, really, really quick. The, the Eagles are tied to two big receivers right now. Rumors came out that they're talking about a potential trade for Brandon Cooks from the Saints and potentially making a big offer for Alshon Jeffrey, formerly of the Bears. Do either one of these happen? Uh, no, no, probably not, is my guess, because I just don't think the Eagles front office is capable of, of doing anything. Um, I'd prefer Cooks to Jeffrey, because I think Jeffrey is a little bit of uh he's a head case guy, kind of. Plus the PD suspension last year. Yeah. I'm done with PD, guys. And yeah. I know, I'm sure there's probably some extenuating circumstance, like they took the blood from somebody else, and that's how you <laughs> test the positive exactly. for whatever it is. Like, obviously, everything is alleged in those situations, and it's all he said, she said. But, like, I, I don't think that's the guy you want to go after. And I would – I personally – having seen Brandon Cooks played or play in person a ton of times in his time at Oregon State, oh, yeah. I think that he – I think that – I wanted him in the draft a few years ago. Um, so I, I wouldn't hate – landing him adding a speedy guy to the outside which is what you need and it isn't bryce treggs you know <laughs> don't give up on a, bryce a treggs proven, yeah a proven nfl speedster who can stretch the field and get your other guys open with the threat that there's a chance we might throw the ball more than 20 yards yeah is is really big as opposed to another big guy who we can use in the red zone well next time you and i talk will be march 9th which is the beginning of the new NFL season. So we will have answers to these questions and and many more when we're back here. We're talking next Thursday. It'll be up next Friday. And uh, we're going to know a heck of a lot more at that point. I'm sure there's going to be no shortage shortage of things to talk about. All right, so that's that's volume one of the Blind Spots podcast. Gregory, a good first show, my friend. Yeah. And uh, thank you all. (laughs) It's that enthusiasm that really wins over listeners. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. (laughs) We'll be back here next week. See you then.